Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's word. You ever uh, encountered someone who's having a uh, tortured conversation with themselves? Um, often happens with diehard sports fans, right? You'll catch them uh, watching a game, potentially, and they start muttering to themselves, right? Uh, now, not you, of course, because you are a Bay Area sports fan, which means you have uh, been a fan of the world champion Golden State Warriors, four-time world champion Golden State Warriors, which is wonderful. I've, I've, I've kind of adopted them as one of my local sports teams. You have the San Francisco Giants, of course, who have been pretty successful in the last decade or two, uh, despite some recent disappointments, et cetera. And of course, your 49ers play today to go to the Super Bowl, which is pretty exciting. That's right. You can, we can whoop for that for, for a number of you. My football team is the Chicago Bears. Yeah, I know. I don't know why you even, uh, yeah, that should be like a gasp more than anything, not a boo. 
Like, poor guy. Um, your greatest quarterback is a man named Joe Montana. Our greatest quarterback, Sid Luckman. If you're wondering who Sid Luckman is, do you know anyone these days whose name is Sid? By the way, no, of course you don't. That's because Sid Luckman, quarterback in the 1940s. 1940s, that's our best quarterback. He was a running quarterback back then, right? Dual threat, because they passed like five times a game back in the 1940s. During, during my lifetime, our rival, the Green Bay Packers, have had not one, but two Hall of Fame quarterbacks back-to-back -back that they lucked into. Neither of them especially good people, by the way. One is likely to be indicted soon for siphoning millions of dollars from the Mississippi's Welfare Fund. True story. What a guy. Brett Favre. Way to go. And so again, I'm, I'm like, why? These, these, these not good people are great for our rivals. We don't have a quarterback. Why can't we get a good quarterback for the great people of Chicago? You see what's happening, right? I'm already caught in this never-ending loop of tortured conversations with myself. This is what happens to me. Imagine, me, imagine being with me on a Sunday. My, my kids know. Um, sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, by the way, doesn't it? In this passage, it sounds like he's having a tortured conversation with himself. And so um, I put together today's message with that in mind, uh, an outline that sounds a lot like an outline even on your bulletin. You'll see it there. It sounds like a lot of a conversation you might have with yourself. So for example, I put, wait, what does Paul mean by the law? Uh, is Paul a Christian? He's talking like he ain't. Uh, thoroughly, I know Jesus did something here because I'm in church. What did he do? And finally, okay, so does the law matter from my life from this point on? So that's, that's going to kind of be our, our roadmap this morning uh, in the midst of Paul's tortured conversation with himself. Uh, each Sunday, we've been looking at um, one word, one carefully crafted, carefully constructed word from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. What we said is Paul sees this as the center of the world. Paul wants to write a very uh, careful uh, structured uh, reasons why Jesus should matter for your life, because he knows if he gets it to the center of the world in Rome, it'll get everywhere else. And so he's very careful about the way he writes every sentence, every word in this letter. And so we're looking at these uh, uh, this big words in this passage. We're calling it big words for living because we're taking a big, sometimes intimidating word, breaking it down and illustrating how it matters for our lives. And these words break down into three categories in Paul's letter to Romans. We have uh, liberating words. We have clarifying words. But first, we've been looking at a group of scary words. We want to get the scary stuff out of the way first. So that's what we're doing first. And today's scary word, as you might have guessed, is law. Law. And whether you know it or not, this word law has tortured your life and may continue to torture your life, but there is a way out of it. There's a way out of the torture chamber, as I'll explain. But first, wait, what does Paul even mean by the law? What, what's he saying here? Let's talk first about what he doesn't mean by the law. And that is, Paul does not mean the civil law. Now, the civil law to which Paul was subjected under a Roman government was just like, in, just like in our day, was government-issued law intended to protect life and property. All right, so if we think of the basics of our law today, they're meant to protect life and property. The same was true for Paul, but that's not what he meant here in Romans chapter 7. Now, he does mention this kind of law elsewhere. 
which I just want to refer to briefly. He says it to his friend, a young friend, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's going to be behind us on our screen here. He says, now we know that the law, that means he means the civil law, is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. In other words, he's saying, look, the civil, this, that kind of law is applicable. It's good for us to have, right? Because it prevents people from harming life, striking moms and dads for murderers, that sort of thing. Does that make sense? And so I serve here uh, in Petaluma as a, as a chaplain, as one of the chaplains for the Petaluma Police Department. I've done that for the last year. And, and during one of the ride-alongs I went on, one of the young officers was, was explaining to me why they got into law enforcement. And he said, the biggest reason for me is my great respect for the law, to uphold it, to serve it, to protect people by it, which is great. But that's sort of the baseline for us, right? Uh, surely there's more to living this life and the life beyond than merely not engaging in criminal activity, right, as our highest principle, right? If our, if our highest aim in life is not being a criminal, <laughs> it's a pretty low bar, Right? for our ultimate life purpose. By law, Paul means the law of Moses. The, the law was given to God's people as, as a primary way for them to express their love in response to his rescue and his ongoing care for them. That's what the law is for. It's a way for people to show back to God that, that they love him back for what he's done for them. That makes sense. So there are 613 of these laws in the Old Testament. They're summarized, thankfully, by the first 10 laws that God issues, that he actually writes, the Bible says, with his own finger. They're known as, famously, the Ten Commandments. I was made into a movie, uh, Charlton Heston, it doesn't matter. One, 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 of, one of these laws, one of these commandments, Paul mentions here in our passage, it says, uh, you shall not covet. You shall not want things that aren't yours. You shall not lust and desire things that aren't actually yours and take them for yourself. And to be clear this morning, you don't have to know the Bible. You don't have to know the Old Testament. You don't even have to be familiar with the Ten Commandments this morning for this to matter for you. By the way, you don't have to be familiar with any of those things to come on a Sunday morning. We don't want a church to be like that where you have to have know everything. No, no, no. You don't have to do that. In fact, earlier, Paul says that these basic Ten Commandments are written on the heart of every person, every human being who's born in this world. He says this earlier in the letter to Romans. The primary way you probably learned these basic commandments was through your parents. The expression of the law probably first came to you through your parents. So who here felt like when they were, at least when you were growing up, your parents had way too many rules. Raise your hand. At least when you were growing up, your parents had too many rules. All right, that's most of you. Most of us here feel like that this morning. Anyone have an example of a rule they felt like was just way too over the top? Anyone weren't willing to share one of those rules with us? Yeah, okay, Cindy, what was the rule? Uh-huh. Oh my gosh, okay. So what, Cindy just, so what Cindy just shared is that she believed so strongly that Sunday is a day of rest that you weren't allowed to even sow 
sow something on a sewing machine or sow otherwise on a Sunday. And, it, and if you did, when you went to heaven, your punishment would be picking out the stitches. That's incredible. With your nose. Picking out the stitches with your nose. That's <laughs> not only <laughs> crazy, impossible. Impossible. I mean, but I guess in heaven, new body and all. Yeah. <laughs> so the law... The law is like a parent or a guardian. You can think of the law like a parent or guardian. In fact, Paul calls the law a guardian in Galatians chapter 4, verse 2. He calls it this. All of us are born with this innate desire to make our parents proud, right? And, and I think God, and I know that God gives us this as a way of hinting towards our heavenly parent, that there'd that there be something later on we would realize when we come of age, we want to make someone else proud, our heavenly father. Now, rules are concrete ways your parents lay out by which we might actually please them and make them proud. By obeying them, we might make them proud and, and pleased. And they, ha- they first help us understand God's high standard in sort of concrete, practical terms until the day comes when we realize, oh my gosh, there's no hope for me actually living up to the standard. Now, you may not have been taught God's law. You may not grow up at Sunday school. That's no problem. All of us get Growing up, wanting to make our parents proud, trying to live up to their rules, and failing at them along the way, right? We can all relate to that. I certainly can. I was talking this week to someone in our church who can certainly relate to this, whose parents were loving but notoriously strict. His parents had a rule that he wasn't allowed to visit with his friend across the street without their permission. He was never allowed to visit his friend across the street without their permission. So they set up this hard boundary, right? Don't go across the street. So what did he do? What do you think he did? He and his friend lined up across from each other, across the street, to visit. How did they visit with each other? They made mud balls, and they threw them at each other, and sometimes they threw them at uh, at passing cars. All right? He and his friend once hit a brand new Chevy with a mud ball, right? And I'm sure ran like Batman to escape. Paul says that's what the law does. The law arouses in us, as produces here, other translations says arouses. The law arouses rebellion, the big no inside with which we all begin life, right? That big no of like, no, I'm going to do things my way. That big, the law gives that big no in our heart an opportunity to express itself outwardly. So a rule like don't go play with your friend, don't do this, was all a boy needed, right? To go throw mud balls with his friend. Not only am I going to go do this, I'm going to throw mud ball. I'm going to throw them in cars. All of a sudden, we're amazed at what comes out of us, right? When we're told not to do something. It's going to be surprising. So the law is like a parent. The law might also be compared to a stage. The stage like what, the one I'm on now. Bill Shakespeare, I think it was, who said, all the world's a stage, and the men and women on it are merely players, When I was in middle school, in addition to playing lots of sports, I was also an actor. If you can imagine that, all right, my my face didn't say the same for acting. Um, Sadly, uh, now it's a face for radio and podcasts. But um, (laughs) when I went out on that stage, one of two things happened. I had the opportunity to shine, shine through my success, right? Or embarrass myself through failure. Most of the time, it went pretty well. 
but lots of us didn't, right? And, and the law is a stage for us to show our love for God, right? Success, show our love for God. But it also gives sin, that big no in our hearts, an opportunity to show up also. So you have success, but right there in the wings is failure. So without the law, we're told in this passage, sin lies dead. It stays behind the curtain. It doesn't show itself until we get out on the stage. Once you walk into that stage and try to obey, sin seizes the opportunity and shows actually you're kind of a failure. You're going to fall short. And the more that happens, it kills us. It just absolutely kills us. So far, what I'm sharing with you is pretty depressing, right? Now you know why Paul sounds so dang tortured. In fact, his monologue begs the question, is Paul even a Christian? Because he's talking like he ain't. I want to say this first to make it really clear. It's natural for every follower of Jesus, even as they follow Jesus and have trusted their life to him, still struggle and grapple with sin in their life and that rebellion and that big no in their heart. And for most of my life, I thought that's what was happening in this passage. Paul is just struggling with his sin. But what he says is actually more extreme than that. Look at verse 14. He says, I am on the flesh. I am sold under sin. Verse 23, he says he's a captive to the law of sin. Last week, you might remember how we shared when we talked about the big word called sin. Paul uses slavery terminology to describe how each of us begin life. That we each begin life helpless, drowning, under sin, slaves to sin. And we showed that clip from the movie, Get Out, to kind of, to kind of feel that, that oppression and suppression in our life. And that language actually continues here in what Paul is saying, right? But once God reaches down with his arm from heaven in the person of Jesus, right, and we say yes to his rescue mission, we are liberated from the penalty and power of sin. So followers of Jesus are no longer under sin, slaves to sin, sold to sin, captive to sin. So what's Paul doing and what he's saying here? Well, whenever you read the Bible, it's a healthy practice if you're confused about something, especially to read up and read down. I always talk about that. If you're confused about something about the Bible saying, well, maybe I should just read a little earlier and read what comes after it. Read up, read down. Okay, so if you were to read up from this passage, you will look in your Bible and check out Romans chapter 7, verse 4, where Paul says that he died to the law, that we as followers of Jesus died to the law. Then, chapter, then verse 6, he says, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit. And if you were to read after this passage a little bit, chapter 8, verse 2, you would notice something also. For, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what Paul is actually really doing in our passage, I believe, is he's flashing back to his life B.C. before Christ. He's having a moment where he's saying, this is how life was for me before Jesus. He's reflecting back on when he had reached the end of his rope, when he realized he was unable to do right on his own and was in desperate need of rescue, he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because I can't do right by myself. I fail over and over again. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's when Jesus enters the picture for Paul. And he can for us as well when we reach the end of our rope. So here's where we think, well, okay, I know Jesus did something then. He did something about this. What did he do? Jesus did something about this. What did he do? Jesus lived the law that we couldn't live. 
and then replaces it with a higher standard. Jesus did two things. He lived the law that we couldn't live, then he replaces it with actually a higher standard. This is where Jesus' first teaching becomes very important. At the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he gives this, this famous sermon. And the famous sermon kind of in the beginning, in Matthew chapter 5, he says this, verses 17 and 18. He's just gotten started. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not come to abolish them, to get rid of them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so a lot of people will look at these, this teaching from Jesus and they'll point at it and say, see, the law still applies. It still applies to life today. Except to say that misses the key details. If we look a little closer and a little but kind of underneath it, he says he's come not to abolish the law, but I have come, Jesus said, to fulfill them. Nothing will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Friends, Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus accomplished what we could never accomplish with our lives. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is hinting at what he alone could do. The remainder of his life, Jesus emphasizes two commands. Loving God and loving neighbor as yourself. So Jesus fulfilled the law, and then he says, I'm going to emphasize a new law. Loving God and loving neighbors as much as yourself. Now, now, I want you to notice two things about these two great commandments. If you go back to the Ten Commandments we mentioned earlier, and if you're familiar at all with them, just note this. The first half, the first five of the Ten Commandments are about loving God with all of who you are. The second half are about loving neighbor as much as you love yourself. Also notice the rest of Matthew chapter 5. After hinting that he is the one that's going to fulfill all the law, accomplish all the law, Jesus will say, you have heard it been said, you shall not murder. He says, you should have heard it been said, you shall not commit adultery. Six times he says, you have heard it been said, and then he says something else. And what he says essentially is, I'm replacing these commands with a higher standard, which is the law of love. I'm replacing these commands with a higher standard, the law of love. Not just don't murder but don't hurt someone with the words that come out of your mouth. Not just don't commit adultery, but don't even look at someone like they're an object for you to use. Love them as much as you love you. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that he's no longer subject to the law of Moses. He's only subject to the law of Christ, the law of love. On the one hand, so Jesus simplifies the law, right? Love God, love your neighbor. On the other hand, he raises it to a higher standard. He says, don't just do this. Don't just not murder. Don't hurt people with your words, right? Don't just, you get it. Okay, so if that's the case, does the law matter anymore for the way I live my life from now on? Does the law matter for how I live from now on? And the answer is yes in three ways. Let me share those three ways. First, I want to encourage you to focus on the standard of the law of love. We all appreciate that Jesus focuses on love, right? It's one of the things we, we often say to people when they're hostile about other things the Bible says. We say, no, Jesus' focus was love until we realize how hard it actually is to love God with all of who you are and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. 
As I talked about last week, each of us begins life saying no and flicking baby food back at the person trying to feed us, right? That's how we begin life. No, I don't want this, <laughs> right? No one's even taught me how to do this, and yet I'm still going to flick the food back at you and say no to you, which is pretty symbolic, by the way, of how life starts to go from that point forward, right? We look out for self. We protect self. We feed self. We comfort self. We strike back when someone tries to hurt self. But if you really, I mean, really want to focus on the law of love and really be successful in love, you can't help but also fix your eyes on Jesus. Because in, with his life, in his life, Jesus was all about love, right? He healed outcasts. He preferred the company of societies unaccepted. He forgave and blessed women of the red district, the red light district. He wept over those who most misunderstood God's love. That's, that's what he did with his life. And in his death, even more so, he was all about love. He forgave those who were killing him while they were killing him. He looked out for his mother and his friend while suffering the most excruciating death yet known to mankind. He thought about them. In Jesus, we, we see fulfilled the high standard of love that we couldn't live. He lived the perfect life of love we couldn't live, and out of love, he died the death we deserved to produce an even higher grace, forever forgiveness, and God with us always. So only in Jesus can we see both. A high standard, love perfected, but even higher grace. I can't meet that standard, but I love you anyway, and I'll be with you anyway. We can only see that in Jesus Christ. Second thing we can take away from this morning, looking to Jesus the Spirit will produce through you what the law intended. The Spirit will produce through you what the law intended. Again, chapter 7, verse 6. Now we were released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit. God with us always means God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And all of us who would trust our lives to Jesus, He comes to live inside of those who trust Jesus to renovate us from the inside out. So that something deep happens in us and we might produce something better. The, the way the Apostle Paul puts this is so wonderful. He puts this so wonderfully in uh, Galatians chapter 5 when he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things flow out of us. Now, if you've been to church before, you may have heard about this fruit, but perhaps not the last part of the sentence. Perhaps you glossed over the last part of the sentence, which most of us, I think, I have glossed over, but not in today's message, where he says, against these kinds of things, there is no law. Pretty important when you think about that this morning, right? The law can no longer condemn you. It can't condemn you of breaking it because love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you keep, those things are unbreakable. When those things are produced in your life, there's no one who can accuse you or condemn you. The law was, was intended to produce all of these things from a person, but only brought guilt, frustration, and ultimately condemnation. It couldn't produce what it intended to produce, but the Holy Spirit can. And you don't even need to have to worry. You don't have to go through your, your checklist about, or worry like, how well am I producing this kind of fruit? You don't have to do extra Bible studies on sort of like, improving or developing each fruit. By the way, 
I never understood Bible studies and things on developing fruit of the Spirit, like focusing on each fruit to develop. That's like a law unto itself, another law. Do this. Focus on do gentleness, do kindness. Do That's not how it works. Which, by the way, so many of us Christians are still so attracted to the law, it's like a magnet attracting us to it. All you have to do is keep looking to the life of Jesus, his life of love, his death done for love. Look there, receive his forgiveness, and let the Spirit do the rest. Third thing about the law to remember this morning is to get out and never go back to it. Get out and never go back to the law. It's always hanging out stage left, by the way, begging you to come out and perform again. Just get back out there. Try to please. It's so tempting to return to the law for so many reasons. We use rules. We use the law to justify ourselves before God, right? Usually in comparison with other people. Like, I may not be good, but at least I'm better than that person, right? That person I saw in the news or that person in my life. Ultimately, the shouldas, the wouldas, the couldas, the mustas of life will crush you. Or worse, you temporarily succeed, making you intolerant of others and intolerable to others, right? When you do pretty well at the rules of Christianity and life, you start becoming pretty unlikable to other people. Trust me. But more than that, more than that, the law won't produce in you the person you aspire to be. Or it won't produce the world you hope to be part of transforming. It won't. So I read this article a few years ago that I held on to for a day like today. Uh, Robert uh, 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 Cialdini, he was an expert in the theory of persuasion. And he conducted an an experiment at the uh, Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. The park had a problem, though, as it made clear on on one of its signs soon after you entered, entered the park and like kind of at its ranger station. It said this. I'm going to read it for you. Your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft. That's the first line. Losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year. Second line. Third line. Mostly a small piece at a time. So Cialdini wanted to, to know if this appeal on this sign was effective. So he and his colleagues decided to conduct an experiment. They asked the park's permission. They got it after some time. Run an experiment. They seeded various trails throughout the forest with loose pieces of petrified wood. All right, right there, right on the trail, ready for people to take with them, take a little souvenir home. On some trails, they posted a sign warning people not to steal. You'll see it up here. On other trails, other trails got no sign. You want to know what the result was? The trails with the warning sign had nearly three times more theft and the trails with no sign at all. And, and, and Cialdini and his colleagues went, like, really did wonder, like, how could this be? And they posited different theories and different ideas, but nothing was really persuasive. They didn't really land on any one thing. Perhaps had they looked to the wisdom of Paul's letter to the Romans, that because of sin, the law of performance can't transform a person. Only love can. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, many of us know this, uh, whether it's from a parent or otherwise, the burden of performing, Father, 
whether it's a spoken set of rules that the Bible says or just an unspoken set of rules that we feel deep down that we've been crushed by, we can never live up to. We're thankful for him because, because through that, we know the rebellion in our heart. We know that that big no comes out on stage, uh, that, that we don't want your way, we want our way. And so, we, so we see the sickness in our heart through these rules and these laws, but we also feel crushed and burdened by them, Father. I pray today for any person here who's felt crushed, condemned, a sense of overwhelming guilt by rules that have been spoken or unspoken in their life. And I pray that they would look to you, Jesus, the one person who could fulfill the great law of love, who loved perfectly with his life and out of love died a death that he might replace our stony heart with a heart of love. He might replace our law doing with the spirit, God with us, who could produce all these things the law can never produce. And when we fail, forgiving us anyway. May we continue to look to you, Jesus, and to your love to produce what we can never produce on our own, to transform the world, not through more laws and more doing, but through more love and more being under your lordship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.